KMTT. Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. This is KMTT. And this is Ezra Bick. And today is Wednesday. Aleph Av. Rosh Chodesh Av. The Gemara says, Mishinichnas Av. Mimaatim Bisimcha. That is halachic ramifications, many of which we've extended to back with Tushiba Salba Tammuz. But the Fiyah Lachaf in the beginning of Chodesh Av. One limits one Simcha. Mimaatim Bisimcha. As well as hashkafa uh, implications, philosophic lifestyle implications. It's a month of, of sadness, of commemoration, and of tshuva. And this is also the last week of the summer session of KMTT. Today, tomorrow, Friday will be the last will be the last broadcast. And we're taking off for Chodesh Av. We'll be back in the beginning of Chodesh Elul with a totally new, a totally new program. Today's shiur is a shiur on the Sechet Brachot Halachav Avagada, which I will be giving. Afterwards, be a Midrash Yomi, the daily Midrash. Uh, but now the now the regular shiur. For today's shiur, I wish to continue, actually go backwards and continue the Mamar Chazal that I quoted last week. And in truth, this time, Halachav Agada will be stretching it a bit. It's basically Agada. It has practical implications, many, many practical implications, but it will be hard to uh, codify what we're going to learn today as a Halacha. If you remember, I read last week the story, and I'll read it again, the story of Chizkiyahu and Yeshayahu. The Gemara begins on Daf Yudam and Aleph. Amar Av Hamnuna, who is wise and who knows the meaning of the matter? But Peshar Davar, the meaning of the matter, could also be read as Pshara, the compromise of the matter. And the answer is, who is the great compromiser? HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Because he arranged a compromise between Yeshayahu and Chizkiah. We're not going to talk today about uh, what exactly was the problem, the personal problem, that involved Yeshayahu and Chizkiyahu. Neither one was willing to go see the other, and the Kishbochu arranged a compromise by having Chizkiyahu be sick, and Yeshayahu had to come visit him. But now we're getting to the point of Yish- um, Chizkiyahu's sickness, and what Yeshayahu said to him. Yeshayahu went to visit went to visit Chizkiyahu, who was sick. In those days, Chizkiyahu was sick unto death, and Yeshayahu ben Amotz, the prophet, came to him and said to him, Thus saith God, command your house, in other words, write a will, command to your house, for you are to die and you will not live. So the Gemara asks, You're going to die and not live. It's redundant. If you're dying, you're not going to live. What does it mean? You're going to die in this world, and you will not live in the next world. It's an extraordinary decree. You're going to be wiped out, exterminated, both in this world and the next world. So, Chizkiyahu asks the question, He knows he sinned his lifetime, so it could be that he gets the word he's going to die, even though he's quite young at this time. Uh, but still, it's, it's everyone dies, so this, nobody tells him he's going to die. He would never have been shocked, but 
he's losing his portion in the world to come. My kuli hai, what's what have I done? What is so terrible? Because you have not engaged in procreation. Chizkiyahu was not married. And he had no children. We'll come back to this point as well. It's an interesting point. Why is the sin of not engaging in procreation that serious that one dies and has no portion in the world to come? It's, it's a mitzvah. Periyah is mitzvah netovah. Mitzvah taseh. I, I, I'm trying to imagine. We don't find this sort of decree against people who, who missed out on other mitzvot. So, uh, this is not our main point today. As an aside, the explanation that I've usually heard, nothing original being said here now, but uh, the explanation that I've usually heard is, is the following. The Gemara says that if you ask chokhmah, if you ask wisdom, Pure wisdom. What is the fate of the sinner? As Chochmah Omeret, Ish Becheto Yumat. Person sins, he's dead. Why does wisdom say that? Because that's the rational answer. Being alive is fulfilling the will of God. Being existent, let me put it a little more extreme, that something should exist is because of the will of God. Nothing can exist without the will of God. And God said, let there be a world, therefore there is a world. If you exist in a manner other than the way that God commanded, then you don't exist at all. Because God said, be thus. You can't be any other way. So if a person sins, he doesn't exist. And that doesn't exist in this world, doesn't exist in the next world. That's what Chochmah says. Just pointing out, the Gemara then asks other people. It asks Tshuva, it asks Torah, it asks Nevoah, and you get other answers. The Torah is more complicated than just pure rationality. But the rational answer is Ish Becheto Yumat the reward, the gain, the result of sin is non-existence. So why do sinners exist? So the answer given is that God wants there to be a will. The famous, famous Medrash brought in the beginning of the Torah by Rashi as to why the first part in the Torah it says Elohim and then it says Hashem Elohim in the second parasha? And the answer is that God wished to create the world, by strict, rational justice. And then he saw the world could not exist. As a Medrash a little bit later, Medrash by Abba Mavinu, beginning of Lechacha says, Abba Mavinu says to God, if there's a world, there is no din. And if there's din, there is no world. You can't have them both. So what did God do? He combined racham and bidin. He combined mercy with justice, and that's what it means, the name of God, Hashem Elohim. Elohim is justice, Hashem Elohim is mercy and justice. And that's how the world was, so to speak, recreated. So, why is it that sinners exist? Why can sin exist in this world? Because God wants there to be a world. And therefore, He suffers the existence of sin. But, if it were not for God's desire that the world should continue to exist, then rationality says, So a person sins, he'll continue existing. He can do tshuva, he can hope for the future, because God has a basic commitment to the existence of the world, despite the presence of sin. But if someone chooses not to engage in that means he himself is not investing in the continued existence of the world, of the human world. He is not committed to, to the future to the future generations, then he loses out on the ability 
to claim existence on the basis of that God wants there to be a world. If you're invested in the future, then God's investment and commitment to the future will bridge the gap between your lack of basis for existence and your actual existence. But if you yourself have cut off, you're totally uninterested, you're not doing anything for the future of the world, then you go back to being din, you go back to being the first passion of Torah, just din, just justice, just Shem Elohim. And by that, by that, uh, uh, on that basis, then any sin, including the sin of not being in Piyah Bavivya, of not doing Piyah Bavivya, not engaging in procreation, or any other sin, will in fact result in your immediate non, non-existence. That, uh, it's a cute explanation. Uh, obviously, there are, there's another explanation altogether, which we have to do with the fact that something really very, very terrible, morally, about, about the sin of not engaging in procreation. The Gemara says in another place, in Musachi Dibamot, that he who does not engage in procreation, it's as though he has shed blood. Not making a new human being is equivalent morally to killing an existing one. And murder, obviously, we know is quite a serious uh, sin, although you will not find any place in the Talmud where it says that he who does murder has no portion in the world to come. But to get back to Agamah, Yeshayahu told Chizkel he's going to die. Because he did not engage in Periyah Rivia. Amalei, Chizkel says to Yeshayahu, Mishum de chazayli beruach ha-kodesh tenapkim inoi banan de lomalo. He justifies his non-fulfillment of Periyah Rivia. And he says the reason is because I saw beruach ha-kodesh I had a, a, a vision. I was given the information in a form of prophecy, in the divine spirit, that any children I have, any children that I would have, would not be proper. They would be Rishayim. They would not, they would not justify their existence. And therefore I preferred, I chose that it's better not to have children than to have children who would be lo ma'alu, who would be improper. Who would be bad? Yeshayahu answered him, Amar lo, Bahadi kafshi derachmana lamalach. In these hidden things of God, kafshi derachmana dvarim kivushim, the things that God has kept secret from us. In these hidden secrets of God, what are you, what, what, what is it to you? May demafkedat ibay lach lemeved, umadanicha kamikut shebrichu, Le'avid. That which you are commanded to do, you have to do. And God, whatever He wants to do, He will do. Okay, the conversation continues, uh, which we recorded last week, about uh, Chizkiyahu wished to marry then the daughter of Yeshayahu, and Yeshayahu objected, and Chizkiyahu told him, there's always hope in the future, that was our discussion last week. Now I wish to concentrate on this first part of the story. Yishayahu told Chizkiyahu, successfully, because Chizkiyahu accepted the argument, Bahadi kafshi lamalach. What are you bothering your head with the hidden, manners, the hidden matters of God? What is the meaning, what is the practical meaning, what is the implication of this phrase? Someone says that he's figured out that the best thing to do is this or that, and you say to him, this is a, a phrase that repeats itself in Jewish history, it's a very famous Gemara, Somebody says to you, well, I have this theory and I'm going to act this way or that way because I'm trying to do something in the future. And you say to him, what are you bothering your head? What are you bringing up all sorts of considerations of esoteric hidden matters? You have to do what you're commanded to do. You have to do your job. And the rest, 
That's for God to do whatever is fit in His eyes. We do what we have to do. Things that are in our control, that are in our obligation, that are our responsibility, we have to do. And the things that are out of our control, it's in God's hands. He can do whatever whatever He wants. On the face of it, you have here a, a recommendation for what's called in Hebrew Rosh Katan. person should not have a big head. He should have a little head. What does it mean? It's, it's basically it's an army expression in Israel. Rosh Katan means that you are in charge of your two square feet. You don't have to look beyond it. Everything else is in someone else's problem. You take care of your little world and if everything falls apart in the surroundings, that's not your problem. That's sort of what it sounds like, Yishaya was saying to him, what are you looking into God's matters? And the ultimate Rosh Gadol is to try to take care of what God is supposed to be taking care of. Sometimes you hear this, and sometimes I felt it myself, we're talking, living in Israel, so national Jewish matters are, are, are our concern. Sometimes you, you feel like saying, you know, you're, you're in charge of Dalai Damod. You're in charge of your four cubits, your, 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 your two square meters. I'm Israel, taking care of the whole nation of Israel. <laughs> that, that's God's problem. You, you, you take care of your house. Take care of maybe your, your community, your children. But, but to start thinking, what's good for Am Yisrael? That's not your business. Is that what the Gemara is saying? This Gemara, it's a very famous Gemara. It's commented on by everybody. I'm going to mention a few kivunim, uh, a few possible implications. And then I'll tell you what I really think. It's possible, it's possible to understand this Gemara in a very restricted manner. As talking specifically about children. And Rav Tzadok, for instance, I'm not sure he means to limit it, but at least his example is limited. Rav Tzadok says, you know, you're talking about whether people should exist or not, whether you should have children. So you have seen, Chizkiyahu has seen, that the children will not be good children. None of us have Ruach HaKodesh, but, but sometimes you can imagine, you know, you say, this world is not a good world. The, the conditions are that, that he won't get a good chinuch or whatever and I, it's better not to have children at all so Chizkiel knew in a much more sure ma- uh, basis he had Ruach HaKodesh the children would not be good children and therefore you make a conclusion it's better not to have them so Tzadok says yeah but but there are other implications it's true what happened is Chizkiel's son is called Menashe Menashe was the worst king ever the worst of all kings well it says that the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of the sins of Menashe. Pasuk says that. And, 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 and Chazal comment on that. Menashe was a terrible, terrible king. But, the Tzaddik points out, after Menashe died, came Yoshiyahu, who was a good king. And, and, Mashiach Tzidkeinu, the next king will be a descendant of the Davidic line. Had Chizkiyahu not had any children, the Davidic line would have been extinguished. So, in the immediate future, you have Menashe, but in the, there are always more implications. So, how can you say that I'm not going to have any children because the implications are bad? You do what you have to do, and God will find something good to come of it. In other words, first of all, his comment is, and I think some of us should say it explicitly, it's about the future children. 
a human being, you think a human being is bad, there are always good things that come from a human being. So then it's a comment, it's an important comment, it's a comment about the value of people. To make a value judgment about a person, the Gemara is saying, is, is kafshi de rachmana. That's the hidden manners of God. What's more, the way Rav Tzadik explains it, it's not that there might be, there will be. Rav Tzadik says, every human being has some good sparks which come of him, every human life is part of a chain of being and to eliminate one of them will have a terrible effect on the totality of the chain, even though there's some good things that will come of it. You could use this as an argument against capital punishment if you wanted. I don't think Rapsodic meant it that way, but to, to absolutely wipe out a human being, that he shouldn't even be born. So there's no such thing as a human being who does not have some, leave some seed which will ultimately become part of the picture, the tapestry of God's plan in the world. So I'm saying this is, it's, 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 it's a powerful idea, but it's restricted to the value of future human beings. Okay, they wouldn't have any implications for, uh, for our, our general life. Although you, you could extrapolate Rav Tzadok's principle more, more, more widely. Any situation, you think it's bad, who knows what can come of it. You know, Yosef Atzadik was sold into slavery. It's a terrible thing. But, he eventually saved, as Yosef pointed out to his brothers, you thought to do evil, but, but God brings good things out of evil situations. Again, as far as I remember, Rav Tzadik said it explicitly and specifically about the value of future generations. Nefesh HaChaim of Chaim Balashana understands the Gemara in a totally different manner. He says it's talking specifically about mitzvahs. As the Gemara said, May demafkedach alecha lavid. That which you are commanded to do, you have to do. And Rav Chaim there explains this Gemara as talking about the relationship between mitzvahs, the obligation to do mitzvahs, and ta'amei mitzvot the reasons for mitzvot. All mitzvot have reasons, but it's none of your business. In other words, we could sometimes imagine, I know the reason why this mitzvah is being given. It's given to maximize this good. In this particular case, it won't maximize the good. If I'm not obligated to do it. Or, in a somewhat more extreme fashion, certain, certain prohibitions are given because they will produce a certain bad effect. So I believe, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm correct. Sometimes it's even explicit in the Torah, you know, why certain things are so. They're, they're prohibited because they have a certain evil effect. But in these particular conditions, it's on the contrary. Doing the prohibition will have a good effect, Fami So, so if Chaim says, you're not allowed to do that. In the pre Sinai times, people like Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov would weigh each thing in terms of all its implications and ramifications. But once the Torah is given, once obligation is given, the whole point of Avram is the difference between doing good things and being obligated. So we sometimes do good things and you measure how good is it. But once the Torah has commanded, the king has said to do it, then that frees or removes from you judging the results of the mitzvot. You have to eat matzah because this will remind you of what it means to be a slave. But you have to eat matzah in any event. Whether you remember or you won't remember. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether it's good or it's not good. Obligations become absolute, and ta'amea mitzvot is the background. It's philosophic, it's a luxury which one can engage in to deepen one's appreciation, but cannot ever be the reason to free one or change an obligation that already exists. So, Rav Chaim is understanding this Gemara in terms of particular the theology of mitzvot, the idea that, very essential in Judaism, that the Torah doesn't suggest how we should live or guide us in finding the good. The Torah obligates. Eved Hashem. You're a servant of God 
and the servant of God doesn't question what he's being told to do, not because he's too stupid to question, but because it's simply not his role. He does what he's told to do and leaves to the king to decide what one should one, one should command. There's a Chaim in the Sefer in the Nefesh Chaim. That's how Chaim explains this Gemara. But I think most most of Hashem understood the Gemara in a much more general sense, as having to do with with a bit of bitachon. It has to do with we've been told to do a certain thing. It appears to us that it's not going to work out. You should have faith. You should have bitachon in God. It's not completely dependent on you. Of course, it's true that mitzvot are given in order to achieve a certain goal, and if God didn't think that we could achieve the goal, He wouldn't have told us to do it. So it's true. When I do a mitzvah, it's because I believe that my doing it will have a good effect. But we have to understand that it's never 100% like that. Ultimately, everything depends on God's will, not on our will. I give tzedakah to a poor person to help him. But I shouldn't imagine that the poor person's welfare is 100% dependent on me. It's not true. It's dependent on God. And therefore, although there is a general correlation between the goals of mitzvot and the mitzvot, or any choice I make, but nonetheless, you should realize that God can always change it one way or the other. It's really up to Him in the end. And therefore, my desire to do good is also based, one, on my belief that I have the ability to do good, two, my trust in God that He will fulfill, that He will develop and, and support the consequences and ramifications of my actions. So I should try to decide what's the best thing to do and then believe and hope, have trust and faith that God will, will fulfill it. That's how, uh, I'm now quoting, what I just said now is basically a quote from the comment of the Ovi Yisrael, the, the Abdurav, uh, to this Gemara. But I think this is found in a lot of other sources as well, Hasidic uh, sources and Muslim sources. This is what the Gemara is saying. Yeshayahu says to Chizkiah, don't be so smart. You can't 100% control the world. So it's true that one has children, not just to have children. Not that Katsadik says, because all children are good. You have children because you want to have good children. And it doesn't make sense to deliberately have bad children. If I knew for 100% that I'd be producing evil people, I wouldn't produce them. But, but who are you to make that decision? Your answer, but this Kabbalah says, Yadruach HaKodesh, what, what the Ov Yisrael says is very appropriate for us. I think that if I do A, B, C, or D, it'll have a bad effect, but I, I, I can't be sure. But surely Chizkiah was sure. So then the answer is apparently that even Ruach HaKodesh, Bitachon is strong. This fills in very well with the continuation of the Gemara that we talked about last week. That after Chizkiah said to Yeshayahu, let me marry your daughter, and Yeshayahu said to him, Kfan Gzera I know Baruch HaKodesh. Yeshayahu was really enough. He says, I know you're going to die. So I'm not going to give you my daughter. So then, Chizkiah gets angry to Shiao and he says to him, Ben say me, say me leave the room. You finished prophesying. I know that even after there is a decree of heaven and the sword is on your neck, it can be changed. So here, Although the roles are reversed, Yeshayahu is in effect saying a very, very similar thing to Chizkiyahu. You know, Baruch HaKadosh, you're not going to have a good child. You're supposed to have children. The reason why you have children is because we hope and pray and tend to invest and educate. They should be wonderful people. 
So you do yours. Things that are not in your control are not in your control, but you can always succeed. You have to have faith in God that you will succeed or else you won't do anything at all. If we don't have faith in God, then we won't do anything at all. The truth is, when you look at this ma'amah, I, 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 I think that basically the Yobisar is correct. Uh, but you, you, you do have to understand it in terms of the Gemara's context. And the context is, as the Gemara says, that which you have been commanded. The Gemara is in, indeed about the relationship between obligations and plans. We have a general, you call it even obligation, we have a general obligation to better the world. But we have specific obligations which we derive from Torah, Tayag Mitzvot, and, and other kinds of specific obligations. I think it's not only about Mitzvot of the Torah. It is true, what I mentioned the phrase I used in the beginning, this Rosh Katan ve Rosh Gadol, big head and small head. So the Torah is definitely not against Rosh Gadol. Rosh Gadol is the definition of a Jew. However, Rosh Katan is primary. In other words, you are more obligated to take care of your Dalit Amot than of the whole world. This reflects a famous halacha in Hilchot Tzedakah. There's a philosophical debate today about whether or not, but at this very point, are, are we in fact as obligated to take care of the starving children of India as my next door neighbor. Prominent philosopher in the United States, strange and problematic, I think, in the immoral philosopher in the United States, but a prominent philosopher in the United States has suggested that to give your next door neighbor or to care for your parents in a manner greater than one cares for the poor of India is immoral. The Torah doesn't think so. Halacha, Judaism says, and, and, and my family, even yourself to some extent, is kodem. The closer you are to something, you have an, a, a relatively absolute obligation to take care of yourself and a great obligation to take care of your family and a pretty great obligation to take care of your community and a much less obligation to take care of the whole world. So that's in terms of tzedakah. So here I think it's in terms of even the way we think about the world. It would be wonderful if we thought about making the whole world better and thinking about the next generation in Cheskel's case and the, and the future generations. But, but that can't undermine the fact that I'm first of all committed to two seconds from now and Dawit Amalat. So it's, it's a complicated question because sometimes you can be more obligated to take care of what's going to happen tomorrow than what's going to happen next week, but what's happening next week is so overwhelming that it will, in fact, overwhelm what I should do tomorrow. You can't be that Rosh Katan. I'm going to put the nail in the hole, even though I suspect that tomorrow this is going to cause the whole building to blow up. Right? It's, 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 the Gemara has to be understood, although here it's expressed absolutely, it has to be understood relatively. You cannot automatically say that I am obligated only to the whole world, future generations. Indeed, the Gemara is stating that some things are in God's hands and some things are in your hands. If you ask me what does Judaism believe about this, I would say there is no absolute border between the two. In fact, God takes responsibility for the smallest things in my life 
and I have a measure of general responsibility for everything that I possibly can, can affect. If it's in my power to, to ameliorate the situation of the starving children in India, then I think I should be taking care of that as well. But, at some point, there is a border here, it can't be well defined, but there is a border between Kafshi Rachmana and those things which have been given to you to be responsible. It wasn't meant to be obligated. It means that God has said, I'm appointing you to be in charge of this. So for instance, God makes me responsible for my children's education. Not the community. It says, So the Torah says, who's going to take care of your children? You are. Now, the community is also obligated. That's why at a certain point in Jewish history, Jewish communities took the responsibility of making schools. Because they saw they did a better job than the individual. But the, the obligation is, in fact, in your hands, and therefore the responsibility is in your hands. Certain things God has not put into your responsibility. It's good to be concerned about them. But I am not responsible for world peace. God is responsible for that. Now, given that, those, those axioms, when you, in fact, measure, when there's a conflict between these different levels, so, I can't tell you in advance which one will win. But there's a different weight to be given to trying to make sure that a future generation or a future child or something that's far away from my home will be in a certain state of good and my necessity to take responsibility for, for the here and the now. Right, we can think of many, many cases like this, which in fact, unlike Rav Chaim, don't involve mitzvot and tamei mitzvot. I have to decide, for instance, I'm just giving you an example that's simply taken out of today's newspaper. Family lives up in Haifa. Family lives in Akko. Kiryat Shmona, in Tveria. Our enemies, Sonei Hashem, enemies of the Jewish people, enemies of God, are sending rockets. You have to decide. Do you take your family and, and, and leave? When you take your family and leave, you know, someone will say that has a bad effect on general morale. Maybe you should stay to keep, up, to keep people happy. I hear that. That's a good point. I also hear the answer. I agree. It would be good if we would stay here, each and every one of us make a decision to stay, and that would help the entire country. On the other hand, I have a greater obligation to taking care of my family than to taking care of the morale of the whole city of Haifa. Now we have to decide how much is each one affected. I don't think it would be justified to give a small benefit to my family on the basis of a large penalty, a large a, a detriment to the general community. There isn't a hard and fixed rule here. But the Gemara is in fact saying that some things are not your responsibility. They're kafshi derachmana. They're the hidden matters of God. And how do we know that? What's really kafshi derachmana? Because it's kafshi. Those things which are beyond our ability to know. Things which we can predict with the means that are in our hands, are given to us. If God gives us the knowledge, He also gives us the obligation. How your future generations will act, even though you know the Ruach HaKodesh, because you're a prophet, but it's still Ruach HaKodesh. It hasn't been handed over to man. Here's a religious statement, a theological statement being made. Sometimes people can know things that they're not meant to know. Those things which are scientific, God has given to man. And if He gives you the scientific means to know or to affect, then He also gives you the responsibility to do so. But things which are hidden, for us that means that they're still unknown or uncertain. And even if they are certain because you have Ruach HaKodesh, but they're not in your domain. So they can't possibly be your responsibility. In terms of the word responsibility. 
And if they're not your responsibility, then they do, in fact, have second place, those things which are your responsibility. And, and non-responsibility cannot trump a responsibility. And here, Rav Chaim is right, since you're obligated to have children, it's a mitzvah, so Ruach HaKodesh and the Vu'ah cannot change those things. Is there a general uh, rule? I don't think there's a general rule here, which is why I said in the beginning, I don't think we are talking halacha. But is there a general uh, direction here? Yes. The direction is that a person should realize what he has to do because he's the one in charge. The world consists of divisions of responsibility. And as a Jew, we have responsibilities which is expressed in mitzvot and obligations and, and, and responsibilities to the world that is around us. And there's certain things which are good things and you should be concerned about them, but they're not as great a responsibility or they're not responsibilities at all. So they're things which we can affect, but they're not things which we have to affect. And then the Torah says, make sure you keep your uh, priorities correct. Someone who sacrifices his own family or his own world in order to in order to to win the Nobel Peace Prize has a distorted sense of priorities not when viewed as to what's more important. It could be that world peace is more important than the welfare of my family. But we don't view the world through the eyes of benefits. We view the world through the eyes of responsibility, of obligation, of mitzvot. And that which you are commanded you have to do and to a certain extent God will do what He wants in the areas which are left to His to His control. And that's it for today. And that's the last year in the series. I want to thank all those who have been listening. I'd like to thank those who occasionally write in. And I thank in the future those who will write in now that the series is finished. I enjoyed very much giving this. It gave me an opportunity to review quite a number of Gemarot which I've sort of more or less forgotten about. And... Uh, in Elul, or after Sukkot perhaps, in any event in the future, I hope to be back with other series in KMTT. And now for the Medrash Hayumi. In Parshat Devarim, after Moshe Rabbeinu lists the different places they'd been in the Midbar, Trashi explains as a subtle form of rebuke, because in all those places there have been sins and complaints against God, Moshe Rabbeinu then has, uh, utters the Pasuk, Hashem Elokeichem, Hirbai Etchem, Binchem Hayom, Kokhovei Hashemayim Larov. He gives them basically a bracha. He says, God has, has multiplied you, and you are today like the stars of the heaven, Larov, in, in their multitude. The Midrash says, Amar Lahem, Hayom Atem Kokhovim, Aval Atid Lavo, Larov. In other words, Hinchem Hayom Hashamayim Larov, the Larov is unnecessary. Today you are like the stars of the sky. So what does it mean Larov? So the understands it as being this is a second stage. Today you are like the stars of the sky, but you're on your way to be La. Lamid is a, means two. Right? It indicates in this case the future. In the future you will be Rov or Rav. Midrash explains what that means. Today you are like stars, tomorrow you will be like the Master. Who's the Master? Of course it means God Himself. 
וכתיב בישראל לעתיד לבוא, והיה אור ישראל לאש וקדושו ללהבה. God is described as being a devouring fire, a living fire. And so Yeshayahu says about the Jewish people in the future that the light of Israel will be like a fire and His holiness like a flame. What does this mean? Midrash is saying today you are like, like stars, but in the future you will be like a flame. But I think the meaning is, after all, the Jews here are in fact a great large people, 600,000, males over the age of 20, and they're about to enter Eretz Israel, where they will conquer, and they'll become a nation. There'll be one nation out of many in the world. So God says to them, you are like the stars of the sky. Well, what's so special about the stars of the sky? Other than the fact that there are so many, but this man is changing that chat. What is special about the stars? You can see them. They shine. They're distinct. And therefore, they're important. They stand out. They're not invisible. And they're not, they can't be obliterated. But of course, we all know that the stars in the sky give no warmth. You can see them, but they don't give you the ability to see anything else. They don't provide light. And they surely don't provide warmth. A flame gives two things. It gives light, and it gives, and it gives warmth. And I think what the Medrash is saying is, remember this is the beginning of the Jewish people here. Moshe Rabbein is saying to them, okay, we've gotten through the Midbar, we've gotten through the desert, now we're a people, and we're going to take our place, our rightful place among the nations. We're going to have our own land, and we're going to live in Eretz Yisrael. But that only makes you like a star, or like the stars of the sky. You will, you will be there. You will, you will not be overshadowed by others. But you don't affect the rest of the world. And the state of the Jews in the world is that they exist. They affect themselves. They develop closeness to God. Kedusha. They become their, their God's people. But they don't correct the rest of the world. They don't enlighten the rest of the world. They don't warm the rest of the world. Latid Lavo, the existence of the Jewish people will be the light to others. It will be like a flame. Vaya or Yisrael Like God Himself. God doesn't exist so that He should exist so we should see Him. God is the light onto the world. God is the warmth of the world. God is the fire which lights up the world. And in the future, what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying is it's a long future. You're now starting, you have to start your own history. Don't, you don't have to be concerned about this. Now you're going to be like Kochavim. But he's very telling them that being like Kochavim, being the Jewish people in Eretz Israel, developing a national existence within the framework of the world will eventually, Adjimot HaMashiach, will eventually transform the world itself by being a fire and a flame. And that's all for today. You've been listening to the Shir on the Sechad Brachot, the last Shir on the Sechad Brachot, Halachava Vagada. It's 13-part series we had in the summer, the summer session of KMTT. And the Daily Midrash. And this is Ezra Bick, wishing you a call to. You've been listening to KMTT, the Torah podcast. Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. Tomorrow's Shiur in Pashat HaShavua. For Pashat Devarim. Followed by Friday's Erev Shabbat program, which will complete our programming for this summer. Wishing you a call to. Bibakat HaTorah Mitzion. Kvaitim LaTorah. Have regular Torah time periods. 
and we'll be back in the future. Ki mitzion teitzei Torah, udvar Hashem miyom ushalayim.